0: Crack me up there. <laughs> Should have been like Saul and ran and hid it. <laughs> well, good morning. Today we are going to be reading out of Philippians 4, starting in verse 4. So if you can open your Bibles together or separately, either way. <laughs> Let's uh, read from Philippians 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone, for the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. In the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we stand before you as a people in need of your presence. I stand before you as a person that knows that, like Moses, I can't speak. You need to speak through me. I need your presence. We need your presence. And Lord, I ask for the word to be planted deep into our hearts today as we open it together. I pray that you would be at work in our midst. You would be active, and we are depending on you to be active, Lord. So bring joy, bring peace, bring your comfort, Holy Spirit, and be at work today through Jesus Christ. Amen. I'm going to give you the roadmap up front here of what we're going to be talking about. As you probably guessed, we're going to be talking about joy. Paul talks about joy over and over again in this book. Let me give you the outline, though, if you're taking notes. This is the big idea. We are commanded to be driven by joy in the Lord in these three ways. We're to rejoice in the closeness of God, we're to rejoice in prayer to God, and we're to rejoice in the peace of God. So rejoice in the closeness of God, rejoice in prayer to God, and rejoice in the peace of God. If you look throughout the New Testament, you will see that the word joy shows up over 70 times. This word for joy happens across the spectrum of different writers and across the spectrum of church history. Even the the church fathers talk about joy often and joy in the Lord. And so as we look at this small four-chapter book, we see joy repeated nine times. In just a short while. So Paul goes through and he says, be joyful, be joyful. In fact, Pastor Paul just had a, a sermon similar to this in chapter 3 because Paul had the command to be joyful. It sounds like it's pretty important to Paul. It's pretty important to God. He's calling for us to be joyful. He's commanding for us to rejoice, to have joy, to be in a state of contented gladness in God. That's a pretty heavy command. That's a really impossible command. And as Paul preached on it, I felt the weight of that. And I don't know about you, but the week after Paul preached on it, and he does a great job of opening the Word, he does a great job of uh, commending the Scriptures to us. And I'm so grateful to be in the church underneath the leadership of this man, and so I'm grateful to be here at his request to preach. And so I'm I'm just amazed, though, as I came to the text, a lot of what Paul said spoke to, in this text and helped me through this text as I prepared today to talk to you about what is joy. So let's let's start with the first point: rejoice in the Lord in this way. Rejoice in the closeness of God. We're called to rejoice in the closeness of God. Let me just read. I, I kind of took the liberty to go back to the Greek and, and do a rewrite of my own. And so it, I, I might have translated this way the first two, two verses here. You must have joy always in the Lord. I will say it again. You must have joy. Be known by your gentle kindness to each and every person you meet, for the Lord is near. He is your closest and ever-present help. That's kind of the the flavor of the passage there. He's he's your close and ever-present help. Paul calls for you to have joy. Does he call for you to have joy in and of joy itself? Are you you supposed to manufacture this? Are you supposed to somehow uh, produce joy? What's the deal? Paul seems to be enamored with this idea of joy. And yet, if you look at Paul's life, it seems like a very unjoyful circumstances that Paul finds him in, even as he writes this passage. He is in prison. He's been left for dead at times. He's been persecuted. He's been forsaken by Christians. He's been accused of by non-Christians and by false believers. He's been shipwrecked. How in the world can you have joy in the midst of all these trials? what is Paul's deal? Maybe we've mistranslated this. Maybe he meant uh, kind of just be content and, and go with the flow. Or maybe he said, why don't we just try to live a good life in Christ? No, he says, be joyful. Rejoice. There is a force behind his command. The apostle did not misspeak. The apostle did not misspeak. He said, the Lord is at hand. That is a phrase throughout the Old Testament in Psalm 16.8, in Psalm 110.5, Acts 2.25, and James 5.8. He talks about, each of those writers talks about the Lord is at hand. What does that mean? In the ancient mindset, Hand and arm symbolize strength. Hand and arm symbolize strength. The Lord is at hand. The Lord is ready to save. He is active. He is at hand. So we see in Scripture, God leads His people out of Egypt, and they talk about the strong arm of the Lord at work. The Lord is at hand. He is active. So Paul here is saying, The Lord is at hand, he is active, so let your gentleness, let your reasonableness, let your kindness be known. I'm sure many of you have heard uh, Teddy Roosevelt's uh, quote of a Western African proverb. He says, speak softly, but carry a big stick. Speak softly, but carry a big stick. I think Paul here is saying, walk gently and humbly because you have a big God. And he's near. And he's active. And he's not going to let you fall. Walk softly and gently and kindly. Even in the midst of persecution. So they they beat Paul 39 times. And what does he do? He forgives him. They crush Paul. They kill him, essentially, And yet he gets up and walks back in and starts preaching the gospel again. He forgives in the face of violent persecution. God is calling us to be at one with Christ so much so that we see our enemies and we love them. Not in our own strength, but in the strength that God provides. God is at work. He is clear. He is clearly close to his people. Now, there are things that can steal our sense of God's closeness. And let me give you three sins that can steal our sense of God's closeness. John Owens actually has this famous statement. I had to work in one of the old dead guys for some people in here, like Jeff back there. Uh, John Owens says, be at work killing sin or it will be killing you. Something to that effect. Be at work killing sin, or it will be killing you. So these are three sins that I see as joy killers. The first is apathy. This steals our sense of closeness to God and closeness to other believers. It's the passive sin of omission. It's the unholy contentment that things will never change, and things will always be the same. It's that sense that you can sometimes have that, so well, the world's always like it is, and, and, and I can't do anything about it. And so apathy can come in and steal our joy. It can cause us to intentionally close our eyes to the battle that's around us. We are called to be believers on mission in the midst of the battle and war against the sin within and the sin without. Second sin is indifference. Indifference is the idea that my life is just too busy and I'll just let it go the way it is. It's similar to apathy, but it's almost the sense in which your life is too full. So you're holding on to the things in life. You're indifferent to the things that are spiritual, the true realities. You're holding on tight. I was thinking about what this looks like in the life of a believer. And I know for me, I, I find myself at times when things are going well to be indifferent towards the call of the gospel and towards the call of the mission of God. And, and I, I had this kind of vision of let's say Pastor Paul is in a, in a, in a uh, field and it's ripe, and the wheat fields are ripe, and he has a sickle, and maybe Jeff's there and they're knocking down the sickle, but it's a huge field. It's a ginormous field. It is, as far as the eyes can see, ripe and ready, and the crop is going to rot unless it's harvested. And then behind them, they're pulling a wagon of believers. And they're, hey, go ahead, go, come on, you can do it, you can harvest. But that's the idea of indifference, is that we can have this sense in which, well, they're the professionals, the church leaders will do it, they'll do it, But yet your neighbors, when you pass your neighbors and then their front lawn and they wave at you, do you pray for their souls? Do you think of, how can I invite them over for coffee? How can I invite them over for a barbecue? What are some ways in which I can share the love of Christ with those around us? So that's indifference. The third one is fear of man, and this is one that is a joy stealer in the sense in, in that When you fear man, you're not fearing God rightly. Because we are called to fear God above all else. And so if we're fearing man, we're not going to step out in joy. We're not going to share the gospel with our friends. Instead, we're going to think about what they think of us. And that's one that also, I mean, all three of these are ones that I feel the pressure of at different times. So when you see your friends and you know. So I'll give you an example. Actually, yesterday I was over here. There was a car wash that they were doing out front, and I was over at the uh, playground. And we were sitting there. I was sitting there with Abigail and Noah, and they were going up and down. And I was having to correct them. And Abigail, stop pushing your brother, Noah. <laughs> you know, let your sister go. And 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 I was thinking. And there was this this kind of. Um, you know, older guy, and he was playing with a kid. It looked like, a, you know, they were doing a mentorship. It looked like he was a big brother or something to him. And um, I thought about, maybe I should invite this this uh, young boy to VBS. And I thought about it, and I said, oh, no, no, I don't, I don't want to. And then, I, said, and then I, said, I felt God moving my soul. And so finally, when the t- chance came, I said, hey, you know, we're having VBS this week. And, and you know what he did? Did, did he... Say, oh, I can't believe you just invited this kid to VBS. I'm going to, now I have to beat you up. I'm sorry. You know, I mean, mean, in our minds, do we sometimes play that? Do we sometimes think, oh, he's going to pull out a taser and taser me until I'm knocked out? (laughs) But the reality is fear of man can get the better of us. And God has called us to preach the gospel. God has called us to live the gospel out rightly in our culture. He has called us to be reasonable. Reasonable, gently, and kindly to preach the gospel. Just just listen to God's provision here. I, I, I think this is appropriate. Romans 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all how will he also with him graciously give us all good things? God is gracious enough to give us his son, Christ, to pay for our sins, to die on the cross, to rise again. That is the gospel. That is the good news. That if we turn from sin to Christ, by his grace, we will live. And sometimes we, we negotiate the gospel to the point where we blend justification and sanctification. We blend the two. We think, okay, well, my right standing with God may have happened at the cross, but maybe I can add in some of this sanctifying work and and get a better standing before. That's not at all the gospel. The gospel is the good news that Christ has applied forgiveness to your hearts based on the righteousness of Christ alone, through the Word alone for his glory alone. The reality of the gospel must come to bear first and foremost before joy can even be questioned or brought to bear in your life. The reality of the justification of Christ on the cross through a righteous life by a victorious resurrection must be applied foundationally to your life, to my life, to your life, before we can move on and say, let's have joy. Our union with Christ is death or life. If we're not at union with Christ, it could be eternal death. If any of you question that union with Christ, if, if any of you question, hear me, if any of you question whether you've ever truly turned in faith to Christ, don't leave here today without talking to Paul or Jeff or one of the leaders here. Because that is the joy That is the center of our joy. It's Christ himself. So our closeness with Christ is what we are dependent upon. And let's not even entertain the idea that our right standing with God is based on works. Because it's only through Christ alone that we have right standing with God. His righteousness applied to our lives. The second point: Rejoice in prayer to God. Rejoice in prayer to God. So we 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 first of all rejoice in our closeness of God, and now we rejoice in prayer to God. I love this quote by D.L. Moody: A great many people seem to embalm their troubles. I always feel like running away when I see them coming. They bring out their old mummy and they tell you in a sad voice, you don't know the troubles I have. My friends, if you go to the Lord with your troubles, he will take them away. Would you not rather be with the Lord and get rid of your troubles than to be with your troubles and without God? Let trouble come. If it is, it will drive us nearer to God. Let trouble come if it will drive us nearer to God. So all throughout scripture, we see troubles come to the saints. They run to God. God delivers them. They run to God, and God delivers them. Today we have, we have in our culture, in our society, you know what they call recession. And so there's a lot of trouble happening. And where do people run? Where do you and I run? We, we say, well, maybe this political party can answer or maybe this candidate can't. No, we need to run to God. That is the reality. The reality is that God alone has the answer. Whenever the people of God ran into problems, you look at the minor prophets, you look at the prophets as a whole, God says, come to me. You have bread, but you're not full. You have a house, but you're never satisfied. The reality is that God is at work. And what does he want us to do? When he brings trouble, he wants us to run to Christ, run to God, run to the Father. Uh, and here's, what, here's the, the aspect of Paul. He says, we are called to approach, we're called to petition, we're called to be with gratefulness and with revealed, uh, revealed requests. Here, here's how I kind of uh, fleshed it out when I looked at the Greek. Do nothing out of anxiousness or worry, but in all things... Ways and times. Come and visit and approach God. Come and plea and petition before God. Come with thankfulness and gratefulness to God. And come with your requests revealed and made known of God. So when we come, we're coming to visit God. How often do we visit God? In what ways do we visit God? Do we get up in the morning and go about our day And when we hit troubles, do we stop and say, okay, God, I need your help in this trouble? Or do we start our day before the throne? Do we start our day in the presence of God? Do we start our day looking to our great and good God? Jesus reminds us in Matthew 6 not to be anxious about anything. Jesus reminds us actually over and over again, he, God is serious about not being anxious, but being prayerful. So Matthew 6, if, if you want to write these down and look them up later, uh, Matthew 10, 19, Mark 13, 11, and Luke 12, 11, and 22. Jesus, over and over again, when people come to him and they say, you know, I'm, I'm having problems with the government, I'm having problems with my brother, he says, don't be anxious. Don't be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, what you will wear, and what what do we do? We're anxious. We think we think be anxious and be successful. God says be prayerful and be humble. We think be self reliant and pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. God says be dependent on me. We think seek my own kingdom and my own name. And God says seek my kingdom in my name in my glory. We think, seek treasure here, build a big house, store up things for the next hundred years. And God says, put your treasure where I am. We are driven naturally by sin to consume, to gather. We're not driven by contentment or Christ a lot of times. And I'm not pointing the finger just at you. I realize that this is, I feel the weight of this. I feel, I feel the weight. It's the culture we live in. It's the air we breathe. When we walk down the street and we see, hey, that's the new iPhone. Oh, that thing's awesome. Or that's the new tablet. Oh, wow, I wish I had that. Or, you know, man, my neighbor's garden looks so much better than mine. We have this idea of, of discontentment rather than the idea of contentment that God is going to provide. Let me tell you something. Money is not something big for God to provide. Needs are not something big for God to provide. Yes, they're big to us, but they're not big for our Father that owns everything, that's created all, that knows all. He knows your needs before you even know your needs. These aren't big things for God, but yet we doubt his goodness. Sometimes we struggle when no one's around, when you're stuck on the highway and your car that just broke down, you struggle. I struggle. I struggled when I sat there and said, wow, God, are you really good? And his reply was, yes, I am. And I'm going to provide. And I'm going to lead. And I thought back. When I moved out to, when Pam and I moved out here, you know what, God provided every step of the way. I said, well, I really feel called to seminary. And they said, well, we don't have housing for you guys. You have to look out, outside the school. And so we started looking, and then we couldn't find anything. And all of a sudden, God, said it, God provided housing. Yes, it was, it was a studio. It was like, it wasn't big. <laughs> so, <laughs> Paul remembers coming to visit us in the studio. He said, well, there's not much here. <laughs> so, um, but, it, it, but it was enough for what we needed at the time. And God provided God provided, when our lease was up at our, at our apartment before we left, and they wanted to charge an exorbitant amount going month to month, um, we had friends that said, hey, we have this place we rented. We just bought this house. You guys can, can live in this house. It, it was like a half a million dollar house. It was huge. It was, it was, it was luxury to us. And so, and so we, we lived there for a couple months, and God provided that by his grace, by friends. God provides if we only ask. God provides if we only He is a good father, and he gives good gifts to his children. I remember when my daughter was born over three and a half years ago, and we were sitting in the nursery, and uh, she had some complications. And so as I was sitting there, we were in the hospital, I think, eight days or something with her. And so she was under observation they were making sure she was getting enough oxygen. She kept having these spells where she would not get enough oxygen. And, and I just was worried and I was holding her and she fell asleep in my arms against my chest. And I remember she was listening to my heart and, and she probably could feel my breath on her face as she was just sleeping. And God says, I'm a lot like this to you. You have so many worries and so many frets. I want you to come and hear my heart. I want you to come and hear my heart. And God's heart is seen most readily in the person and work of Christ. And I want you to feel my breath on your face. The Spirit of God, I want, you, I want to refresh you. God wants to refresh you, and he wants you to hear the heart of God today. He wants you to be at peace in him. And that's what brings us to the next point. Rejoice in the Lord always in this way. Rejoice in the peace of God. Rejoice in the peace of God. Listen to what Christ says about the Comforter. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you in all things. And he will bring to remembrance all that I've said to you. Peace I leave with you. In my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. Let not your hearts be troubled. The the heart of the Father is that our hearts would not be troubled, but be content in him. God is diligent to seek our joy and His glory. He is diligent to seek for our joy and His glory because He is glorified when we find our joy in Him. Joy drives us and compels us not to trust in our own strength. Joy is in... Joy in the Lord causes us to see rightly. Rightly in the circumstances, in the means of sanctification, in the foundation of our justification, through the work of Christ in faith alone, through the word word alone, and in grace alone for God's glory alone. We see rightly when we are joyful in God. When we are anxious and fretful, we don't see rightly. When we see God we are at peace even beyond understanding we are at peace even when the world can turn upside down we are at peace what are they going to do kill us we'll be go to be with Christ that's what paul says what are we going to do fret no we're going to have the same mind that is in Christ Jesus we're going to descend and serve these are things that god's called us to and god is calling us today to rejoice in the lord to have faith that God is at work, that he is active, that he is present. He is our present help in time of need. God is at work. It's easy to be anxious. I, I want to I read a, kind of an extended part of a sermon that Ari Torrey gave um, I just want you guys to listen. It's, it's about D.L. Moody, and D.L. Moody, if you guys don't know, is, was an evangelist at the uh, end of the 1800s. Uh, Tory served him as his pastor, and so he knew him very well. And it's called The Seven Secrets of Why God Used D.L. Moody. Um, so it's kind of a famous sermon that he gave after D.L. Moody's death in, in the 20s. Um, so li- listen very closely. I'm sorry if Extended readings are not your forte. (laughs) Moody knew he had the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's why God used Moody. Moody knew he had the baptism of the Holy Spirit. In his early days, he was a great hustler. He had a tremendous desire to do something. He actually was a salesperson. Um, So he would sell shoes, and he, he, he knew how to talk people into things. But he had no real power. He worked very largely in the energy of the flesh. But There were two humble Free Methodist women who used to come over to his meetings in the YMCA. One was Auntie Cook and the other one was Mrs. Snow. These two women would come to Mr. Moody at the close of his meetings and say, we are praying for you. We are praying for you. They would say that over and over again after each of his meetings. And finally, Mr. Moody became somewhat nettled and said to them one night, Why are you praying for me? Pray for the unsaved. And they replied, We are praying that you might get the power. Mr. Moody did not know what that meant. But he got to thinking about it, and then went to these women and said, I wish you would tell me what you mean. And they told him about the definite baptism of the Holy Ghost. Then he asked that he might pray with them, and not They merely pray for him. So Auntie Cook once took, uh, once told me of the intense fervor in which Mister Moody prayed on that occasion. She told me in the words that I can scarcely dare to repeat that though I have never forgotten them, and he not only prayed with them but he also he also prayed alone for the gift of the Holy Spirit for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Not long after that, one day, on his way to England, he, walked, he was walking up Wall Street in New York. And he, this is a story that Moody actually almost uh, very rarely shared. In the midst of the bustle, and the hurry of the city, his prayer was answered. So he's walking up the busyness of New York. His prayer is answered. The power of God fell upon him as he walked up the street. And he had to hurry off to a house of a friend and ask that he might have a room by himself. And in that room... He stayed alone for hours. And the Holy Ghost came upon him, filling his soul with such joy that at last he had to ask God to withhold his hand, lest he die on the spot from that very joy. Can you imagine that? He went from that place with the power of the Holy Ghost upon him. And when he got to London, partly through the prayers of a bedridden saint, In Mr. Leslie's church, the power of God wrought through him mightily in North London, and hundreds were added to the church. And that is what led to his being invited back for a wonderful campaign years later in London. Time and again, Moody would come to me and say, Tori, I want you to preach on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I do not know how many times he asked me, but he would actually go to the Fifth Avenue P- uh, Presbyterian Church in New York and go to different churches and say, you need to have Tory come and preach on this. Tori got so, he, he recounts, he says, he says, I got so frustrated. He said, don't you know I have other sermons? <laughs> Moody turned to him and he said, you never mind that. You just preach the, what I tell you to. <laughs> so, Time and again, he would call me off to some church and, and, and would come up and say to me, Now, Tory, be sure you preach on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Once, he, he had some teachers in Northfield, Massachusetts here. Fine men, all of them, but they did not believe in the definite baptism of the Holy Spirit for the individual. They believed that every child of God was baptized with the Holy Ghost. And they did not believe in any special baptism with the Holy, Holy Ghost for the individual. So Mr. Moody came to me and said, Tori, will you come to my house after the meeting tonight, and I will get these men to come, and I want you to talk this thing out with them. So, of course, I very readily consented, and Mr. Moody and I talked for a long time, but they did not altogether see eye to eye with us. And when they went, Mr. Moody signaled me to remain for a few minutes. Mr. Moody sat there with his chin on his breast as he so often sat, And when he was in deep thought, and then he looked up and said, oh, why will they split hairs? Why will they split hairs? Why don't they see that this is just the thing that they themselves need? They are good teachers. They are wonderful teachers. And I'm so glad to have them here. But why will they not see that the baptism of the Holy Ghost is just the one touch that they themselves need? Finally, he says, "I shall never remember. The, I, I shall never forget. I shall always remember. Never forget the eighth day of July in 1894. To my dying day, I was. I was. It was the closing day of the Northfield Students Conference, and the gathering of students from the Eastern colleges. Mr. Moody had asked me to preach on the Saturday night and Sunday morning on guess what, the Holy Ghost. <laughs> and so on Saturday night, I had spoken about the baptism with the Holy Ghost and what it is and what it does and what." why we have need of it, and the possibility of it. And on Sunday morning, I spoke of the baptism with the Holy Ghost, how to get it. And it was just about exactly 12 o'clock when I finished my morning sermon and took out my watch and said, Mr. Moody has invited us all to go up to the mountain, and at 3 o'clock this afternoon, to pray for the power of the Holy Spirit. It is the three hours till three. Some of you cannot wait three hours. You do not need to wait three hours. Go to your rooms. Go to the woods. Go to a tent. Go anywhere you can and get alone with God and have this matter out with him. And at 3 o'clock, we all gathered in front of Moody's mother's house and then began to pass down the lane and through the gate and up to the mountainside. And there were 456 of us in all. And after a while, Mr. Moody said, I don't think we need to go any further. Let's sit down here. And we all sat down. And Mr. Moody says, has has any of you students anything to say? I think 75 or so rose, and one after another said, Mr. Moody, I could not wait till three, and I've been alone with God since the morning. And I believe I have the right to say I've been baptized with the Holy Ghost. And when these testimonies were over, Mr. Moody said, young men, I can't see any reason why we shouldn't kneel down here right now and ask God for the Holy Spirit to fall upon us. Just as definitely as it fell upon the apostles on Pentecost, let us pray. And we prayed there on the mountainside. As we had gone up to the mountainside, heavy clouds began to gather. And as we began to pray, the clouds broke and raindrops began to fall and the overhanging pines and all the clouds had been gathered over Northfield for ten days, a big cloud of mercy and grace and the power of God. And As we began to pray, our prayers seemed to pierce that cloud, and the Holy Ghost fell upon us. Men and women, that is what we all need. We all need the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Brothers and sisters, I thought it was appropriate to end with that story because it's not only true, but it's also what we need. We need the Holy Spirit to come upon us. Yes, the Holy Spirit indwells us at salvation. We need the Holy Spirit freshly to come upon us. We are leaky vessels, and we need God and more of God because the task at hand is more than we can bear. We need joy, and that's only found in God. Let's pray. Dear Father, we, we, we ask for your presence We ask that you would come in might, that you would shake this place, that you would shake away the aspects of sin and doubt. That you would shake away the aspects of fear and anxiousness. Lord, we long to see you glorified. We long to be joyful in and through you. We long to be filled with with your Spirit afresh. Would you fall even now, Holy Spirit? Would you come now? Strengthen your people for the task at hand. You are good. You are gracious. Thank you, Jesus Christ.